Hi, I'm Biz. I'm a working parent with a kid and a teen. It's been 10 years since the show began, and a lot has changed on the show and in the world. But by elevating the voices of others, we have learned we are not alone, and we are doing a good job. This is still a show about life after giving life. This is One Bad Mother. This week on One Bad Mother, burn her! We talk about the long-lasting impact of medical myths with Eleanor Claghorn, author of Unwell Women. Plus, this is negative. Woo! It's Caitlin calling from Chicago. I'm not calling from Chicago. I'm calling from Oregon, where my family is visiting my aunt because my wife has decided that she doesn't want to be married to me anymore. And so she is back in Chicago moving out. And I am here with my five-year-old and my two-year-old. So obviously, I'm real sad. And my life is a total mess. And every day after I put the kids to bed and my aunt and uncle go to sleep, I take my drink and the work-from-home little project that I have to do, and I sit out on the back deck under this wisteria-covered pergola, and I do my work, and I drink my drink, and then after I'm done with that, I get out a yoga mat, and I do a yoga class on the deck, and then after that, I go and soak naked in their hot tub, and the stars here are amazing, I think the motto of Oregon is, like, makes everybody more outdoorsy than usual because I'm very much an urban person, and the stars are just extraordinary. And so I am living a very, like, polarized life right now where everything is awful, and there's also these really, really good things. And so I'm really glad that I have somebody to tell this to, and... I'm also wondering how you are, Biz, because I really, like, take you so personally. I feel like you really are my friend, and you really do care about how I'm doing, and uh, I really, really take it personally when you say that I'm doing a good job. So I would like to hear your check-in now. How's this week been for you? How are you doing? First of all, I adore you, and you are doing a good job, and I mean that in every possible way. This is an epic check-in, and I'm glad you shared it. This is, this is a thing that people are experiencing. I never know exactly what to say when people are in a period of transition and separating from partners. I never know if that is a I am sorry or congratulations. Regardless, it's not an easy transition. And I am so in love with what you are doing. You're right. It's a dichotomy. Two different universes happening, but we have learned that that is is a good thing. And one doesn't negate the other. I want to be in Oregon with you. I love that you're naked in a hot tub. That is... You have just made my day. I love that. I'm like, I hope that your aunt and uncle are hard sleepers. Same with your kid. (laughs) My youngest would never give me the luxury of nighttime naked hot tub soaking. I would have to be up and down all the time, scarring the child for life. So I think that's wonderful. I really, I really think it can be so hard to be present enough to enjoy the beauty of things that are around you when there are also things that don't make you feel beautiful around you. That is a hard balance and you're doing it. At least you're doing it for today. And that that deserves a really good job. And thank you for asking. I'm, I'm fine. What do we know what that means? That means, <laughs> so <laughs> as I mentioned last week, Stefan got the COVID. We have managed to make it the whole pandemic without 
official COVID cases. Sometimes I wonder, did we have it? We just never tested positive? I don't know. But Stefan, seven days ago, the symptoms, and then the positive test. Then they began to live in the bedroom in a mask. The rest of us stayed out of the bedroom. I haven't been in my bedroom in over a week, except for this very moment where I'm recording the show. And we'll get more to that in just a second in my check-in. We all, the rest of us, have stayed negative. And then yesterday, so six days into Stefan's experience, Raiden tested positive with the COVID. God damn it! <laughs> Luckily, they were already isolating themselves in their room because they're 13 now. And their body just suddenly was like, we're going to sleep until noon every day, and then we're going to only want to be in our rooms. So that happened fast. So they've been isolating for the most part. Ellis and I, who Ellis has remained inseparable from my body, who's eight, since the word COVID entered our house, I do not know how he and I have not transferred at least some sort of illness at this point in time. We are still negative. And I have been sleeping on a couch, which has not been the worst thing. It's a very comfortable couch. And I'm getting to enjoy the den in a way that I only fantasize about sometimes. We've watched television with dinner every night, which is what I did growing up, and I'm all right. And it's been a lot of Switch playing, a lot of Lego building. I still feel fine. (laughs) Just like the impending sense of, is it going to happen? Right? Am I going to get it? And we are, by the way, two weeks from the start of school. Our school starts after Labor Day. So I'm happy that one will be done before school. But I'm like, if it's coming for Ellis and I, it needs to come. I need it to come on. And not, Stefan's walking around. He hasn't had a fever in a couple of days. And also, by the way, I'm a horrible caretaker of Stefan now that children are in the house. <laughs> like he'll get up and kind of, it was a very mild case, meaning not in a hospital. He's been wandering about sometimes, and I appreciate that. Being stuck in a room for a week is frustrating. But he comes out and he wanders about and I can't stand it. I'm like, I need you to make a choice. Are you sick or are you not sick? And I know that you walking around doesn't mean that you aren't sick. But it's sending me a mixed message. I need to know what role am I in? Am I in, Stefan might as well be on a trip mode right now? Or am I in a, can I even ask if you do a thing? Or uh, why are you out? Can you wash your hands 20 times? Uh, don't talk to us. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. The plague room, I was like, I got to go in there and record today. So I'm going to need you to take all the Clorox wipes and basically cover the desk and anything that I might touch. And we're going to open the windows. So we're going to turn the air conditioning off. No, honey, 30 minutes. I'm going to have those windows open and the AC on and no one's going to die. We aren't all going to die. We're not going to suddenly owe thousands of dollars. I need air fluidity in the house. And so that's how I am. That's (laughs) That's my check-in. I've been isolating in my house for too long. So there you go. But I do feel fairly confident in the medical knowledge that we have about COVID, which says a lot more than the confidence I have sometimes in the medical knowledge about my body as a female, which I think ties in nicely to what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Eleanor Cleghorn, author of Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis, and Myth in a Man-Made World. Please take a moment to remember, if you're friends of the hosts of One Bad Mother, you should assume that when we talk about other moms, we're talking about you. If you are married to the host of One Bad Mother, we definitely are talking about you. Nothing we say constitutes professional parenting advice. Biz and Teresa's children are brilliant, lovely, and exceedingly extraordinary. Nothing said on this podcast about them implies otherwise. This week, I'm geeking out, everybody. 
I am getting to speak with Eleanor Cleghorn, who has a background in feminist culture and history. After receiving her PhD in humanities and cultural studies in 2012, Eleanor worked for three years as a postdoctoral researcher at the Ruskin School of Art at the University of Oxford on an interdisciplinary arts and medical humanities project. In 2017, she was shortlisted for the Fitzcarraldo Editions Essay Prize. And she has since written creatively about her experience of chronic illness, including her 2021 book, Unwell Women. She now works as a freelance writer and researcher and lives in Sussex. Welcome, Eleanor. Thank you so much for having me. What a joy to be here. (laughs) Let's have fun with feminism. Woo! (laughs) Before... Before we get into the book, I want to ask what we ask our guest, which is who lives in your house? I'm going to start from the youngest and go (laughs) up to the oldest. So the youngest is a rabbit and his name is May. And then we have two cats, Maui and Rocky. And then we have a dog named Bob and then a dog named Gus. And then we have Hallam, who is my son. And he is 12. And then we have Oscar, who is my son, and he is 15. And then we have me. I live here. And then my husband, Matt, he lives here too. (laughs) I like that you have prefaced, I'm going to do it in order of age. So we now know where Matt stands on the age poll. Yes. Okay. Oh, my God. This is where this podcast should really be called Watch Biz Derail in Less Than a Minute. (laughs) That's a lot of animals. And I fully support a lot of animals. Were any of them pandemic animals or or have those guys all been just lurking about? Guilty as charged. And in fact, I got the age thing completely wrong because (laughs) Gus the dog is in fact the youngest being in the house. And he was a pandemic puppy. I'm always more fascinated by the animals. But in this case, you have teens So I got to give a shout out to the teens. Are they stashing out yet? Are they like... Tiny bit. Tiny little, (laughs) little tiny bit. I can't can't wait. I am going to mercilessly mock my children. I mean, I already do. It's a time. It is a time. (laughs) And their dad is very bearded. He's a very bearded guy. So it is, you know... That's where they're going. It's yep. their legacy. They're no. going to inherit the her, the her suitness of the father. <laughs> so it's in the post. It very much is in the post. I love it. All right. Everybody who has been listening over the last couple of weeks uh, to months has heard me mention this book that you wrote, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. This is what I have officially called my fun summer beach read. And it has been that for me. I have, like, I read the first two pages and I had to go grab a pen. I've just been, like, working through it like I'm in a college book. I love it. I want to start with having you tell us a little bit about what led you to write this. I mean, besides the gaping issue. (laughs) treatment of, oh, actually, I do want to let everybody know where I found out about your book. And that was Good Housekeeping. I think it was Good I think it was Good Housekeeping. (laughs) Or it was Better Homes and Gardens. I'm not sure. But they were doing a very woke article on advocating for yourself as women, making sure that when you went to the doctor's office, you were being treated respectfully and you were being listened to when it comes to pain. Because women in particular, when it comes to pain, are grossly undiagnosed or misdiagnosed or just ignored. And I was like, I I want to go read her book. So how did you come to writing this book? Can I firstly just say, can we put that on the next print? Biz says, this is a beach read. Yeah, that's right. You're welcome. Bizella says, fun beach read. Beach read. (laughs) My publishers are going to absolutely love that. It's an untapped market. It is. I love it. (laughs) Uh, So I came to write Unwell Women because I was diagnosed with a chronic autoimmune disease called lupus. 
And I was diagnosed with this disease in 2010, just after I had my youngest son, Hal. And the pregnancy had been really complex. My son had a heart condition called heart block, whereby his heart was beating really slowly. Now, all the while he was inside my body, he was being supported by my blood and my heart. But of course, my doctors had to intervene to make sure his heart rate was stable so that he didn't need a pacemaker when he was born. Now, this condition is super rare. And one of the only things that causes it is these autoantibodies that can attack the maternal immune system, cross the placental barrier and attack the fetal heart. It's super rare, about one in 1,000. And so because of this emergent situation, I was tested for these autoantibodies and it turned out that I had them. Now, at the time, all the medical attention was focused on my baby and I have brilliant care here from the NHS, expert life-saving care. But no one ever really explained to me what this meant for my health. So when Hal was about nine weeks old, I got really sick. I had a heart condition myself. And it was a total mystery to my doctors what was actually going on. Nobody thought to link what had happened in my pregnancy to what was then happening to me. After about 10 days in hospital, a rheumatologist finally put the pieces of the puzzle together and gave me this diagnosis of lupus, referred me to a specialist clinic. They then knew how to treat the heart condition. And from then on, I had to sort of adjust to being an unwell woman with a diagnosis, with medication. And as I was coming to terms with this diagnosis, I started looking into medicine's history, because I was really flummoxed as to why I'd been put in this position where so many of my health concerns that were seemingly very obvious were just not being addressed. I'd also encountered a lot of medical dismissal for pain and other symptoms throughout my 20s and was frequently told, hey, you're just hormonal. Hey, you're probably an alcoholic. Hey, you're probably too fat. Hey, are you pregnant and do you not know it? I mean, it's a real, it's like a real checklist of things to not say to women. Anyway. um, Sorry, are you pregnant? Anna's don't know it? Yeah. You know, just right after, like, yeah. you sure? Do you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know? Do you know, woman, sitting there, do you know what's going on in your body? So what I now understood, of course, was that all those years of being unwell and in pain were because of this undiagnosed illness. And at that point, I didn't really understand that medicine had this glaring gender problem, whereby women and people of marginalised genders tend to be dismissed, diminished, have their credibility denied, and the legitimacy of their illnesses kind of constantly put into question. So it was from looking into history, looking back through medicine's history, that I realised that, okay, medical science has moved on exponentially. We can do complex blood. We can look inside the body. We can perform almost medical miracles. But what we can't do is treat people as human beings when they walk into a doctor's office. (laughs) We still don't know what a womb is. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it seemed to me like, why are women still, women especially, still flummoxing and baffling doctors when it comes to the causes of their complex symptoms, of the especially of their pain? So that was 2010. So that's where the real kind of germ of the idea came in. I wanted to figure out not just what was happening insofar as or in line with medical gender disparities, but also why they were happening and where they had come from and why these kind of attitudes were so baked into medical practice in the year of our Lord 2010 (laughs) and still, of course, continue to be. Still right now, yes. That is a really good question, the why. Now, I, like I said, relaxing over the summer, 
actually, I read it a lot in Carline at summer camp. <laughs> but you go all the way back. We start with, I guess, a Greek wrote like all the way back with one of my favorite topics, which is the wandering wombs. And I, I want to just start by saying it's obvious that it began because men who somehow got in charge of being doctors just didn't want to touch women, right? They didn't want to touch them. They didn't want to look at them. There was like a lot of like, ah, it's a mystery. So we're just going to make some guesses about stuff. And, and I am not being facetious, everybody. That is pretty much what they did. And my favorite from that era is this notion of the sentient wandering womb in which, which I guess kind of really is the anchor for this idea that then progressed, which was everything that affects women is tied to this womb because they are only a womb. Feels a little like the message. What was the process of going back that far into the beginning of medical treatment of women? And let's just talk floating womb stories. Please feel free to share. Of course. I wanted to go right back to the beginning because the beginning of medicine, or at least of our Western medical model, is always marked by the Hippocratic authors. Now, we've probably all heard of the Hippocratic Oath, which is the oath of ethics that our healthcare professionals still swear a version of today. And the fundamental part of that oath is first do no harm. And so this oath came from, <laughs> yeah, right? Sorry, <laughs> right, I'm going to stop because there are some chapters in which a lot, we'll get, we'll get into what I wrote on the side in the margins a couple of times. Anywho, yes, <laughs> yes, do no harm. Go ahead. So first do no harm. <laughs> and it felt really important to me to go right back here because, of course, the Hippocratic writings, Hippocrates, this ancient physician, is the foundations of Western medical thinking and is held up and put on this pedestal as being the father of modern medicine, the one who revolutionized medicine from being something that was really in the realm of myth and superstition and divine punishment into being this sort of objective evidence-based practice we know it to be today. But I also understood, as we do, that ancient Greece was a remarkably patriarchal society. <laughs> so how are women and their bodies going to fare in the medical theories of elite men in ancient Greece? How did elite they do? Men. How'd they do, Eleanor? Tell us. How'd it, how'd it work out? Spoiler alert, <laughs> not great. <laughs> no? What? All right. I know this is shocking. This is yeah. shocking, but not yeah. all that well. Okay. So <laughs> the female body in ancient Greece is primarily, as you said earlier, a reproductive vessel. Women exist primarily to bear children. If they don't bear children, they exist to look after children. All women are somehow entangled in the kind of reproductive servitude of that particular state in that particular time. And so when these Hippocratic physicians were, you know, writing down their very, very important thoughts and feelings about bodies and illnesses, it made sense to them that the womb, the uterus, was the most central and defining organ in the female body because it sure. was like a facsimile of women. It was the reproductive center. It was without that organ, you ain't having no babies. So, you know, <laughs> this is how they really perceived a woman's body as foremost a womb. And so all of the medical ideas, or at least like 95% of the medical <laughs> ideas about women were about their reproductive potential, they're about fertility, they're about pregnancy, they're about birth, they're about what happens afterwards, they're about what happens when you're no longer fertile, as it were. Yeah, when you're useless. It was women who were subject, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> when you are... Hung out to dry. Hung out to dry. And when you are a witch, which is chapter yeah, six. When you're anyway, a go witch. ahead. <laughs> when you're a witch, yeah. More on that later. Yeah, um, more on that later. So when 
these physicians were theorizing what could possibly make a woman sick, they decided, well, it's when she's not doing these reproductive things. It's when her body isn't actively involved in marital sex or receiving male seed. I'm sorry to everyone who had to listen to those words. I, listen, uh, when I, I the womb to, is not weighed down. Yeah, <laughs> I have to say, not to leap ahead, but that idea that what cures most women's illnesses is to have marital sex, by the way, marital sex, and to try to get pregnant. Oh, you're not feeling well? Go home. <laughs> Get fucked. <laughs> like, I yeah. mean, like that 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 was the reason you're not feeling well is because you're not being a woo. Like your uterus is not in use. Yeah. And and that stuck around a frighteningly long time. It did. Yeah. It really did. So because they believed that the womb was so hungry for marital intercourse, for semen, for pregnancy. <laughs> they wanted it. It wanted it. It hungered for it almost in a way that was independent of the woman within whom the organ resided. So this is where this theory of the wandering womb comes from. An underused, unemployed, inactive uterus could start wandering around the body in search of the moisture that it wasn't getting because it wasn't having an old roll in the hay with hubby. (laughs) So it would start roaming around, pressing up against the liver, pressing up against the heart and causing in its wake symptoms as diverse and peculiar as you could possibly imagine. Like almost every conceivable physical and emotional mental symptom could be caused by this inactive hungry, voracious womb going and wandering. So even when anatomists were able to have a look under the hood, even when they were looking... (laughs) Which wasn't right away, FYI, all of this insightful medical (laughs) facts came from not looking. Yeah, they came from speculating, making hunches. And those hunches were informed by social ideas about who people were and what people were for. They weren't thinking objectively about this is a human, this is a human with symptoms, this is a human with her own Mm. life course and story. They were thinking in very general terms, this is what a female is, this is what a male is, and this is why they exist in the world. And then coming up with these assumptions, hunches, that were always... (laughs) very patriarchal. They were always enforcing the party line. And also, just as a sort of horrifying side note, the ancient Greeks also promoted very early childbearing. Yeah, They, you know, preferred women to be about the age of 14 when they married and started bearing children. Well, again, they're not the first. I mean, like, again, Mm-mm. not so long ago, in the grand scheme of life, you discover, well, you didn't discover, you you let us know, you reminded us that this priority, I mean, even, even if we have shifted away from the wandering womb, what has stayed or had stayed for a very long time was what makes a woman healthy and keeps them healthy has to do with their uterus, has to do with menstruation has to do with them needing to use their wombs and their uterus and all of that. And so that is from the moment they start menstruating up until they stop. It wasn't about age as we see it now. It was about the biological function of their body. And you were kind of worthless on like pre- you know, those eight-year-old babies, I mean, eight-year-olds, they're worthless. Who wants those guys around? <laughs> they have no purpose. Oh, Miss 55, 65, whenever your cycle happens to affect it, you're also out. No value. That went a long time. But what, what I found remarkable 
Well, not remark. I'm sorry, everybody. None of it's that fucking remarkable, which is depressing. But back with the sort of Hippocratic era of medicine when it was beginning, the focus was you got to keep that uterus active or you won't be healthy. But don't use anything else. Don't be active with other things because that will keep your uterus from being well. So no books, no learning, no any of it. And that one really stuck around, stuck around a very, I mean, guys, I am not kidding. I am, you know, I am 48 years old. I am a child of the 70s and the early 80s, well, child of the early 80s, and from the deep south. And I can remember another girl telling me that I shouldn't be acting so smart because how will I get a boyfriend? And I can, I remember being young enough to be like, well, then I don't want that because somehow I was born into a family who <laughs> was like, fuck that. But that's not that long ago. That's in my lifetime that that thought process was still there. And not to skip ahead too much, but I want to ask, we go back to that first question, why has this lasted? And we can, and you go all throughout history. We start at the beginning, we go through the 1800s, the early 1900s. There are a lot of movements. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of discovery. There's a lot of, whoa, maybe we shouldn't have done that. And yet the pattern didn't really change. It just got manipulated, right? From the rest cure, from like, oh, you need to rest, that will make you healthy, to hysterical. Now, I was just talking with our guest last week, Linda Villarosa, who wrote Under the Skin, and she was talking about stress, like toxic stress. But you think about stress. I remember going into the doctor all the time in my 20s and 30s and being told, it's just stress and being dismissed. So how have we not learned? Or have we learned and we're just not learning fast enough or getting the word out? Talk to me. I think the principal reason why these mythologies and these fictions have stuck around for so long, despite scientific progress, despite education, despite knowledge progress in so many areas of culture and society, is because what this all comes back down to is controlling women's lives and bodies. It's not actually about keeping them well or protecting them or preserving their health. It's about control. It's always been about control. And the best way to control women, as history has constantly proved, is to reduce them, reduce their choices into this kind of reproductive servitude. And to limit, on the other side, to limit their opportunities in the world, to limit their capacity to make change, to lead, to govern, to create knowledge, especially. So what we have, because medicine for so long, as you said earlier, has been this male-dominated system of power. You know, women weren't even able to gain medical licenses in the UK and the US until the late 19th century. We're talking like really not that long ago in the scheme of human history. Yeah. So we've got centuries and centuries of unchecked male power, not just male power, but elite male power that really benefits from women being kept in their place, from women being kept in the separate sphere of activity where their only choice in life is to be a wife and a mother. Well, and and I so appreciate how much you spent on the fact that when you when we're talking about the women being controlled their sphere of we are historically most of this was about wealthy white privileged women and that marginalized people people of color people of different classes it was a even larger different ball game for them. Yeah. Which adds to where we are today still trying to struggle 
through this, that somehow bodies are yeah. different mm-hmm. <laughs> based on yeah. class yeah. or yeah. color. Yeah. And these, you know, ideas from the 1800s about there being these kind of scales of what they used to call civility that marked how much pain a person could feel, you know, with the white, refined, middle and upper class women being almost highest up the pain scale and thought to be most capable of experiencing pain because she was so sensitive and so refined. Whereas lower down on the pain scale were women of colour. And of course, what we know now is this is a horrific piece of racist biology, racist anthropology, that was introduced as a way, as an apologism or a justification for the abuses of chattel slavery. Oh, yeah. It was a dehumanizing horribly dehumanizing tactic to enshrine in this kind of authoritative knowledge an idea that people of color were less human than white wealthier colonizers indeed and ideas like this entirely false racist assumptions have stuck and persisted in into other systems of power like medicine Everyone, I know you're on the edge of your seats because this is a thrilling conversation and there's a lot more to it. So we're going to stop here and pick back up next week for part two of speaking with Eleanor Cleghorn, author of Unwell Women. It could happen to you. You're all grown up now, a professional adult with diverse interests and hobbies. And one of those hobbies is video games. You just can't help it. They're so good now. If that's you, we're here to tell you, you are completely normal. I'm Maddie Myers. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Kirk Hamilton. And together we form Triple Click, a podcast about video games. If you think you might be a person who likes video games, we hope you'll give Triple Click a listen. Triple Click, new episodes every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hey, you know what it's time for this week's Genius and Fails. This is the part of the show where we share our genius moment of the week, as well as our failures, and feel better about ourselves by hearing yours. You can share some of your own by calling 206-350-9485. That's 206-350-9485. Genius fail time. Genius me, me. Wow. Oh my God. Oh my God. I saw what you did. Oh my God. I'm paying attention. Wow. You, Mom, are a genius. Oh my God, that's fucking genius. Okay, Legos. Guys, I don't know if you remember this, but like in the spring before school was out, I won a huge bin of just miscellaneous Legos at the school auction. And then when we were at the thrift store, I found five bedding bags filled with Legos. And they were like 20 bucks. <laughs> Bought them all. Because I like to sort and find pieces. I'm very good at it. And Ellis likes to build like crazy. So when we got them in the spring, we dumped everything. We went through them and we pulled out all the Ninjago minifigs. Because that is what we were into. Hard stop on Ninjago for some reason. And now we're back into Star Wars. And we haven't pulled those out in a while because I was going to sell them for much more than $20. But I was like, Ellis started getting back into Star Wars and he started creating his own mocks. That's the lingo. Doing some Lego mocks. And they're awesome. So I was like, all right, do you want to start pulling the Legos back out? And we haven't been able to leave the house, everybody. Quarantine. And I find it's a soothing activity. So we have been pulling out bags to sort, and it has saved my mental state over the last few days. Hello, One Bad Mother. This is a genius. I, or maybe it's a giving up. I don't know. But I um, have three kids, 
and ongoing battles with them putting their clothes away. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this one. And so I'm always doing laundry, folding laundry, giving them laundry, threatening them to put it away, et cetera, et cetera. And then we go on trips, and they don't unpack their suitcases for months, and it becomes a whole thing. And I hate going in their rooms, and it's stressful for me. So I bought (laughs) three laundry baskets, and they are just going to have their own laundry baskets, and those laundry baskets are where I'm going to put their clean clothes. And what happens to those clean clothes after in the journey of those clothes, of being on their bodies or whatever, I don't care. And I'm sure this will turn into a fail at some point down the road. But for now, it's a genius. Laundry baskets for my kids, each a different color, so I know which one belongs to which kid. And that is where I'm putting the clean laundry, and I'm not going to think about it anymore. You are doing a great job, and so am I. Thank you. Love it. I love it. It is giving up, but it's also a genius. Anything you can do that can keep you from having to go into spaces of your house that no longer make you happy, I think is a genius. I think it's a win. Good job. You're doing such a good job. This will never fail you. Failures. Fail, 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 fail. You suck. Okay. (laughs) Just gonna go back to what I said at the opening. I'm kind of the worst at caring for others. Like, and I know, like, I'm like, I, I, I want you, it, but like the COVID thing is so weird because I don't want to get everybody else sick. So I don't want to be around him. But I also, I don't actually miss my room at all. I'm like, I'm, I don't know when I'll ever go back <laughs> to sleeping in the bed with Stefan. Oh, like, when are we plague free? I do feel a little bad because I deeply understand the guilt of being sick. And yeah, that's it. Just, I wish I could be a little better at that. I'm calling with a fail. I was—I have two kids who are three and five, and we recently had spring break where they were not in school, and we took a trip with them to see some people, and we stayed in a hotel, which was all of us in one room, and they're three and five, so it was horrible. There were obviously some good moments on the trip, but mostly it was just horrible hard work. And someone tried to make small talk with me about how, oh, did you have a nice spring break? A person who is, like, young and doesn't have kids. And I just unloaded the brokenness onto them. Like, of course, I didn't have a good time. I had three kids. Two kids. I don't even know how many kids I have. I have <laughs> room. It was horrible. And they just looked at me like I was was just. They just like literally backed away from the conversation. And what I remembered was, oh, that's not for everyone. That's only for like. What she just wanted to hear was, we had a nice time. How are you? And I sort of forgot how <laughs> to. How to talk yeah. like in a person and just mm. not let the not let the brokenness show out in the world. And I know, oh yeah, I just forgot that sometimes when people ask, "How are uh-huh. you?" they don't actually want to know. Mm. And I told her how it really was, and just watched her sort of tiptoe backwards away yes. from me. And it was, oh dear, bless. It was. That's a big fail. <laughs> Reading the room. Uh, have a great day. You're doing a great job. I'm not. You are doing a great job. I love it. I say let the brokenness shine through. Let it. Let it come out. Vacations don't leave you rested once you have children, unless you have magic children, or you have a large group of support people there to help you which then it becomes like a totally different experience. But for the rest of us, how was vacation? Maybe we should just stop asking that question. How was spring break? How was vacation? Maybe we should just stop asking people with children (laughs) that question as a favor to them. Well, you're, yeah, you're doing a horrible job having a conversation. 
with others out in the world. Uh, so yeah, you're doing a, hor- <laughs> doing a horrible job reading the room. You are the greatest mom I've ever known. I love you, I love you. When I have a problem, I call you on the phone. I love you, I love you. Hey, kid. Your dad tell you about the time he broke Stephen Dorff's nose at the Kids' Choice Awards? In Dead Pilot Society, scripts that were developed by studios and networks but were never produced are given the table reads they deserve. When I was a kid, I had to spend my Christmas break filming a PSA about angel dust. So yeah, being a kid sucks sometimes. Presented by Andrew Reich and Ben Blacker. Dead Pilot Society, twice a month on MaximumFun.org. You know, the show you like, that hobo with the scarf who lives in a magic dumpster. (laughs) Doctor Who? Yeah. All right, everybody, let's listen to a mom have a breakdown. Oh, this is a rant. I'm just emotional labor. So, my partner has been saying all fucking summer before the summer even started yeah we should take the kids to the pool this summer let's take the kids to the pool this summer and I'm like (laughs) okay and then summer is almost gone now and guess who never took the kids to the pool this summer we didn't and he is on vacation this week and he said again at the start of the week yeah we should really take the kids to the pool this week and I'm like okay and then yesterday, he's like, oh, uh, me and so-and-so drove by this really nice pool, and, you know, I'd like to go there. And I'm like, okay. Okay. And <laughs> today, I looked up pool schedules and realized <laughs> that there's really only one, like, if we want to go before the end of the season, because that's, like, Sunday, because fucking school starts next week, if we want to <laughs> go, we need to go tonight. And so I told him this, and he was like, well, you know, he kind of, like, was unimpressed. And I don't know why he needs to be impressed, but whatever. (laughs) He was just kind of, like, not appreciative. That's for fucking sure. So anyway, (laughs) we're like, okay, we're going to go tonight. And he's like, you know, oh, do you know where this is? Oh, do you know where that is? And he at one point goes, you know, if you want to go to the pool, you've really got to help me. And that's when I realized I don't want to go to the fucking pool. He's the one who's been saying he wants to go to the pool. He wants to go to the pool. And I'm happy to go. I don't give a shit. But, like, this isn't my idea. Why do I have to be the one to do mm, emotional labor? All right. Bye. (laughs) First of all, you're doing a very good job. Uh, Yeah. I have danced in that dance before. And you know what? This is true not only of partnerships. This can happen in friendships. I will say it's a little different when they're, or this can also happen with like relatives, aunts, uncles, grandparents, in-laws. But I really hear you. The, (laughs) the, hey, I have a great idea, but I'm not going to execute it. And then I'm going to, just keep saying what a great idea it is. That gets a little a little frustrating. But here's here's what I want to point out. This is why, you know, I don't usually play calls in which we need to vent about partners. But I'm playing this one because one, that is very normal. <laughs> and two, right at the beginning, you used the word we. It's summer's almost over and we haven't taken them yet. And sure, it's been quite the feminist theory day. I could derail until why should it be fucking we? But the thing is, eh, you didn't marry an asshole. So we is appropriate. It means <laughs> it means you see yourself as part of a team. And it doesn't sound like you wound up being the one who organized the entire thing. I don't even know if you went to the pool, to be honest. Maybe you guys didn't. Maybe you just turned a hose on the kids out in the backyard, which counts. I, I just want you to know that I'm impressed. I 
see you. I saw what you did. Okay. And I think you are doing a very good job. Guys, what did we learn today? Whoa! I had such an epic time talking with Eleanor Cleghorn. So epic that I'm excited we split this up into a two-parter. And here's the thing. There could have been a lot more that we talked about. Could have been a three-parter, four-parter. I don't know. But it was exciting. It's a weird word. And I know I keep comparing her book to a beach summer read. But it, it, it really kind of is. It's not a boring read. I mean, if you like true crime, this is your book, everybody. <laughs> Except it is uh, the true crimes against female independence and free will. Might be worth checking out as we try to navigate the world as selves. Turns out that the reason we are struggling with being a self may have a lot to do with the history of how we have been treated regarding our bodies, our purpose, and the control instilled over us throughout history. May not feel like that's happening now, except Roe versus Wade, but I think it ties in really nicely to the larger question that we're asking. I think it also supports the larger message of the show, which is that speaking out, sharing your stories, saying when things aren't normal or aren't okay, lead to less isolation, lead to strength, lead to acceptance. With the bottom line being, you are doing a remarkable job. And if you feel like it's impossible and it's too much, it probably is. Okay? Everyone, you're remarkable. I will talk to you next week. Bye. I got to low down mama blues. I got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. You know that right. We'd like to thank Max Fun, our producer, Gabe Mara, our husbands, Stephen Lawrence and Jesse Thorne, our perfect children who provide us with inspiration to say all these horrible things, and of course, you, our listeners. To find out more about the songs you heard on today's podcast and more about the show, please go to MaximumFun.org slash OneBadMother. For information about live shows, our book, and press, please check out OneBadMotherPodcast.com. One Bad Mother is a member of the Maximum Fun family of podcasts. To support the show, go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Well, daddy, baby, bustin' by, not throw down mama blues. Oh, said daddy, baby, bustin' by, not throw down mama blues. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.